Hello, Pam Johnson here to talk about an, a new look at an old disease, and that's diverticulosis. So we're going to cover diverticulosis stem to stern from the esophagus throughout the entire GI tract. And we're going to look at how CT is critical for identifying the complications in patients who develop inflammation, bleeding, and other complications related to diverticulosis. Uh, anatomically speaking, diverticuli are focal outpouchings. They can be true or false, and true diverticuli contain all three layers of the bowel wall. The most common location is the sigmoid colon. It is the sixth cause of outpatient GI disease. Lots of money spent every year on diverticular disease and its complications because of the widespread nature of it. Um, and there's actually been a rise in hospitalizations due to the complications of diverticulosis in the last 20 years. The most common uh, complication, of course, is diverticulitis, as if the diverticular neck becomes obstructed. And this can occur in diverticular disease in the duodenum, jejunum, ileum, and colon. Although we don't think so much about diverticulitis of the small bowel, it is something that you need to be aware of. So we're going to review the different types of diverticuli throughout the GI tract and the complications that you need to be cognizant of and looking for on CT in patients who develop acute pain. Beginning with the esophagus, um, duodenal classification in the esophagus depends on the location, whether it's pharyngeoesophageal um, or thoracic. And the pharyngeoesophageal diverticuli include zankers, um, which is posterior midline through Killian's dehiscence, or Killian-Jameson diverticulum inferior and lateral to the cricopharyngeus muscle. These patients can develop dysphagia, regurgitation, halitosis, coughing, and aspiration. Thoracic esophageal diverticuli are divided by location. So epiphrenic diverticuli are found in the distal third, and these are associated with motility disorders such as esophageal spasm and, and achalasia. The mid-esophageal diverticuli are the ones that are secondary to granulomatous inflammatory disease and adenopathy, but they can also arise in the setting of dysmotility. Thoracic diverticuli can also be classified depending on the pathogenesis, whether they're pulsion or traction type, most commonly being pulsion due to increased intraluminal pressure. Um, typical exam question, what would cause a traction diverticulum due to pathology extrinsic to the esophagus and differential diagnosis includes fungal infection and tuberculosis. These can be some symptomatic when the patient when they get large in, patients can develop reflux, dysphagia, and aspiration. Now the second most common location for diverticuli are is the duodenum and we reviewed duodenal diverticulitis in the talk on du diverticular emergencies. Um, the most common location is near the insertion of the common bile duct and pancreatic duct. Um, this is important to under to remember that if a patient's going to undergo ERCP, the endoscopist can be fooled into thinking that a diverticular orifice is the opening to the common bile duct and cannulate a diverticulum. And for this reason, I always put duodenal diverticuli in the impression of my report so that um, the diagnosis will be known. The windsock diverticulum is the intraluminal web 
that occurs because of a, a failure of recanalization, and these can become obstructed as they balloon um, and result in both obstruction and perforation. Most duodenal diverticuli are asymptomatic. If the neck becomes obstructed, the patients can develop duodenal diverticulitis, generally treated with antibiotics. Um, rarely, patients may require surgery, particularly in the setting of perforation. And if the duodenal inflammation results in biliary obstruction, patients develop what is known as Lamell's syndrome. So what do we see on CT? We'll see uh, saccular outpouchings of the duodenum in the region of the C-loop and the head of the pancreas, usually along the medial wall. They can be collapsed. They can have air, fluid, debris in them. Contrast can flow into a uh, diverticulum if the patient is administered oral contrast. It's, it's much easier to see the connection of the diverticulum to the bowel lumen on a coronal MPR. It looks like a mushroom. So if you suspect that uh, there's an extra collection of air and you take a look at the coronal, and in most cases you're going to see the connection and be able to tell that it's just a duodenal diverticulum. Um, diverticulitis in the duodenum looks similar to diverticulitis in the colon, although the ticks generally are much larger. And you'll see inflammation, stranding, you may see extraluminal gas if there's perforation. Um, differential diagnosis, the setting of duodenal diverticulitis includes peptic ulcer disease and other forms of duodenitis, as well as pancreatitis. Sometimes it's difficult to tell whether the pathology originates in the duodenum or the pancreas when there is a large degree of inflammation surrounding these, air, these structures. So here's a nice case of duodenal diverticulitis. We can see um, a lot of stranding surrounding the duodenum. The, the diverticulum is obstructed and filled with fluid and debris, and the wall of the duodenum is thick and secondary to edema. In another patient with a perforated duodenal diverticulum, you can see a lot of gas tracking out of the lumen into the retroperitoneum. And image D here, the sagittal image, shows follow-up when the patient was given oral contrast. And there's uh, a contrast is filling the diverticulum. The extraluminal gas and inflammation have resolved. Jejunal ileal diverticuli are much less common and uh, they can be easily missed on CT, if you're, especially if you're not looking for them. Um, Meckel's diverticulum in the ileum is a true diverticulum, but elderly patients can develop false diverticuli. Uh, the complications include bacterial overgrowth, if these become uh, functionally obstructed, and diverticulitis. In the, set, in the setting of diverticulitis, there's inflammation, the diverticulum is obstructed and inflamed, and can perforate into the mesentery and develop an abscess. Other rare complications include fistulization of the bowel to other organs. Um, rarely, a diverticulum can serve as a lead point for intussusception or volvulus. And um, in very rare cases, there can be involvement of the mesenteric vasculature resulting in hemorrhage. So here's a case of a jejunal diverticulitis. You can see the small ticks in the jejunum and the inflammation within the adjacent mesentery. This is a somewhat subtle finding, but it's very important when you're looking at patients in the emergency room who have abdominal pain to look very carefully at the mesenteric fat for any evidence of stranding and inflammation that will lead you to the cause of their acute presentation, as in this case. 
And you can see the patient also has a number of sigmoid diverticuli with no inflammation. Another case of a perforated jejunal diverticulitis with extraluminal gas and stranding in the mesentery inseparable from the thickened bowel wall. This patient has another complication of diverticular disease, which is hemorrhage, and this is within an ileal diverticulum. You can see increasing contrast within the lumen of the diverticulum on going from arterial to venous phase. So in any patient where you, the, there is known or suspected GI bleeding, you do not want to give oral contrast. And here's a perfect example. You need to be able to see the intravenous contrast that is extravasating into the lumen or in this case, as in this case, into the diverticulum in this patient with diverticular hemorrhage. Meckel's diverticulum is something that can become inflamed and hemorrhage as well. It's a true diverticulum. These are, are much more readily recognized when they're inflamed and they're often overlooked when they are um, uncomplicated. They can contain, uh, they contain gastric mucosa, which is why they're, we're able to identify them on nuclear medicine protectinate scans. And the presence of this gastric mucosa can result in acid secretion, ulceration, and hemorrhage. Other un less common complications include obstruction, diverticulitis, and intussusception. It is often misdiagnosed because... Um, the, it's, it's difficult to know exactly where the diverticulum is located, and when it's small and uncomplicated uh, and not inflamed, it's really a difficult diagnosis to make on CT to be able to separate this finding from the surrounding small bowel loops. So here's a nice example of an inflamed diverticulum on axial and coronal images. It was a blind ending sac that looks a lot like an obstructed appendix with a lot of surrounding inflammation. And in this very interesting case is a post-operative patient. But if you look at the CT several weeks earlier in the immediate post-operative setting, you can see the diverticulum with fluid in the lumen but no surrounding inflammation. Um, and so it, much more easily seen in retrospect. Another patient with a perforated Meckel's diverticulum, this is an easier diagnosis because there's an abscess with surrounding inflammation. But um, as you can, what's interesting is when you look back at, the, at any imaging that's available prior to when the patient developed perforated perforation of the diverticulum, you can often find the Meckel's diverticulum that looks a lot like a normal appendix but it's arising from the small bowel. And in this case, you can see it on the two images on the left of the slide, the axial and sagittal images with the white arrows show the uncomplicated Meckel's diverticulum. And then the three images on the right showing the abscess due to perforation. We're all much more familiar with colon diverticular disease. Very common. Um, patients can be symptomatic even just due to diverticular disease or due to diverticulosis, I'm sorry, diverticulitis when the diverticuli become inflamed, very much related to dietary content. And um, the complications of diverticulitis include perforation, abscess, fistula formation. So CT is critical to make the diagnosis of diverticulitis and to identify whether or not the patient has complications that warrant admission or whether it's a mild case with just some inflammation which may be managed on an outpatient basis with, with antibiotics. So our role in these patients is to carefully characterize 
whether there's any evidence of microperforation, whether there's an abscess, whether there are other complications associated with diverticulitis, including thrombophlebitis and perforation. Here's a nice example of ileocecal diverticulitis. You can see that there are ticks involving the terminal ileum and the cecum and a inflammation surrounding the ileocecal valve. So cecal diverticulitis is a little bit more tricky because clinically patients are thought to have appendicitis, but nonetheless CT can readily distinguish between those two different potential diagnoses with ileocecal or cecal diverticulitis being a um, non-surgical uh, process as opposed to appendicitis, which requires surgery. Interestingly, the appendix can have diverticuli and not a common finding, but you may identify this. You may see small diverticuli that are uncomplicated. Very rarely there are reports in the literature of appendiceal diverticulitis, which clinically would look just like your standard appendicitis um, and is probably not often diagnosed preoperatively, but only at pathology. Here's an, a patient, an example of a patient who has appendicitis and an appendiceal diverticulum, which we can see well because the appendiceal lumen is obstructed. So the one of the other really uh, potentially life-threatening complications of diverticular disease is diverticular hemorrhage. It's the number one cause of lower GI bleeding, and it can be massive. So um, important to be able to identify the site of bleeding in patients who present with lower GI bleeding and CT has become a very widely used imaging tool in patients with lower GI bleeding. Uh, the protocol, very important to give IV contrast and no oral contrast and some centers perform a non-contrast scan to help confirm definitively that any high density in the lumen is due to bleeding. Um, however, if you're just doing arterial and venous phase, you can make the diagnosis accurately because the hemorrhage changes in configuration and density from the arterial to the venous acquisition. And if you have scanners with dual energy capability, you can then reconstruct a virtual non-contrast scan to save on the radiation dose and provide you with um, a baseline comparison data set to be absolutely certain that the intraluminal contents are due to extravasation of contrast and active bleeding. Um, so here's a nice example of a patient with right-sided cecal diverticular hemorrhage. From our, um, the arterial images on the left to the venous images, you can see that the, that the quantity of intraluminal blood is increasing from arterial to venous phase and extending, filling the diverticulum. So this is a diagnosis that's easy. You're not going to question whether this is ingested material because typically small bones and other medications don't change from the arterial to the venous phase as is occurring in this case. How quickly the contrast extravasates is a reflection of how rapidly the patient is bleeding. A pretty uncommon complication, but again one that you really do not want to miss is thrombophlebitis, which can occur in both right and left-sided colon diverticulitis. Um, so right colon can result in superior mesenteric vein thrombophlebitis and some of the small branches of the SMV can become involved. Um, and uh, untreated, the thrombus can propagate and lead to ischemia. So the 
The importance of making this diagnosis is that the patient is going to require treatment with antibiotics and anticoagulants. So it's, uh, it's something that we need to look for in all patients who have acute diverticulitis. So for sequel diverticulitis, you're going to look at the branches of the SMV, and here we can see superior mesenteric vein, thrombophlebitis with clot and surrounding inflammation, and extending into the tributaries. Interesting that in this case, the degree of inflammation surrounding the SMV is not typical for a, a bland thrombus that, it, that occurs in other pathologies and should really make you think about this being thrombophlebitis or infected thrombus. Here's a patient with sigmoid diverticulitis, an inferior mesenteric vein, thrombophlebitis. So you have to carefully look at the stranding in these patients. You might mistake this for inflammation extending along the mesentery, but this is the thrombosed IMV, um, and again, an important diagnosis. Patients who have diverticulitis can often perforate, develop abscess, and then actually will be walking around and not necessarily acutely ill. So it's something to keep in mind in elderly patients who present with, I don't know, it's, uh, with a white count but no fever or just unusual presentations and you do a CT and you see an abscess, a walled off abscess. This is something that can happen in patients who have diverticulitis. So here's an example of a patient that had diverticulitis as shown on the axial images and then went on to develop multiple hepatic abscesses identified on PET-CT sometime later after the diverticulitis had subsided. Here's a patient with perforated diverticulitis that developed into an abscess, as you can see with the where the arrows are pointing, and there's actually gas within branches of the superior mesenteric vein in this case. One thing to be cognizant of is the giant colon diverticulum, which is defined as any diverticulum measuring more than five centimeters in diameter. Most commonly occurring in the sigmoid colon, there are three types. One is a pseudodiverticulum that looks like other diverticuli. The second is an inflammatory type, which, which is, in essence, a subserosal collection that developed because the bowel wall perfs into the serosa, and the patient develops sort of a telescoping abscess surrounding the bowel wall, but contained by the serosa. And then the third is a true diverticulum, which actually is just a, um, your standard anatomic diverticulum that happens to be very large. Patients who have um, complicated giant diverticuli present with pain and uh, that can develop the same complications that we see with other diverticulitis. Here is an example of a patient with diverticulitis and an unusual gas collection that was tracking along the wall of the diverticulum. And as you can see, that is within the serosa. It's being contained by the serosa which was confirmed at pathology demonstrating a large subserosal abscess due to contained perforation into the wall. So the management of these patients depends on whether they're perforated, infected, whether they're bleeding, and it's tailored to the complication. They, they may require admission, surgery, or interventional radiology, coil, coiling in the cases of hemorrhage, um, and some patients do require surgery to uh, if they're having recurrent diverticulitis or other complications. So in conclusion, recognize that diverticular disease can occur along the length of the bowel. Be aware of the uh, 
possibility for diverticulitis, thrombophlebitis, and hemorrhage as important complications to identify. The multiplanar reconstructions are really helpful for identifying both diverticuli and their complications. Important not to give oral contrast if there's any chance of intraluminal hemorrhage. And I'm going to close out with this illustration showing you all the different locations and some of the facts that are associated with diverticuli that arise in these portions of the GI tract. Thank you very much for your attention.